couple of weeks, we've been trying to get our heads around this uh, very important idea that Paul uses to explain the gospel to us. And it's the idea that those who are being saved are saved together, or as he says, in the Messiah. <clears throat> and that led us uh, last week to this uh, thesis 14 in our series, that to be in Christ by faith means that I am put right. Uh, Paul's word is justified, but but for me, the best way to get at that is to say we're put right by God, based not on what we do, but what Jesus has done, based on the perfect faithfulness of the Messiah. And, and to be in the Messiah is to be in that, uh, that force field, as we've said it, of his influence and power. That led us to, to talk last week about the Jesus curve, as uh, my friend Paul Miller uh, writes about it in his book on the J curve. The Jesus curve is that movement which is the center of our redemption, where Jesus is obedient to the point of death, specifically death on a cross. And the outcome of that is that God has raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place. And that's the movement, down and then up. And what we saw in this idea of that Paul has of, of being in Christ is that that Jesus curve becomes ours by faith. So we talk about the, the faith J curve then and this principle that Paul seems to be working with that whatever happens to Jesus happens to all his people. So uh, as he dies, I have died with him. And as he has been raised up, so I have been raised up. I've died with Christ. I've been raised up. And Paul says in Ephesians that we're actually seated with Christ in the heavenly places. <clears throat> in, uh, in Colossians, he says... Uh, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Our life is hidden with him. His life is hidden as well until that day when he appears in his glory. And then Paul says we will appear with him because whatever happens to Jesus happens to us. So, that's, that's what we've seen so far. We share in the benefits of what Jesus has done, and, uh, and that comes to us strictly on the basis of faith, as gift, 
not as something that we earn or uh, we move into somehow on the basis of our own merits. Well, what I want to talk about today then is, we'll call it living into that J-curve. So, so here is the next move then, that what you have received as a gift, now God says, I want you to learn <clears throat> the experiential reality of being joined to Christ. And we'll look again at Philippians 3, and then we'll, then we'll compare that with Matthew chapter 16. So follow along. <clears throat> The yellow portion is what I particularly want to think about with you today. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through the faithfulness of Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. All right, that, so that's the faith J-curve, right? The righteousness that's on the basis of faith. But now our focus, verse 10. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. <clears throat> so Paul says, I have a righteousness which is by faith, but now what I want to do is I want to know Christ, and I want to enter into the power of his death and his resurrection becoming like him in his death, attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul isn't just dreaming this up, of course, out of his own ideas. What he says is squarely in alignment with what Jesus said to his disciples. Matthew 16. <clears throat> Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves... Take up their cross and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now there's, there's the J-curve. Take up the cross, follow me, lose your life so you can find it. So let's talk about now what we'll call the righteousness of love. We talked about the righteousness of faith, the gift that God gives us on the basis of Christ's work. But let's think about the righteousness of love, <clears throat> and let's, uh, let's stop back to Martin Luther again, and we talked about him last week, and his important little treatise called The Two Kinds of Righteousness. Luther says, you need to distinguish these two in your mind. Because if you get them confused, you'll get confused about the gospel, the good news. So the first type he talks about is what he calls alien righteousness. 
alien meaning, it's, it's foreign to me. It's not my natural condition. It comes from outside. It comes from another. And of course, for Luther, that is the righteousness of Christ. And for him, this alien righteousness was the very heart of the gospel. And his strong conviction was that the medieval church that trained him to be a priest and a monk, the medieval church, Luther thought, had totally missed this. They had read, they had read the gospel wrongly for centuries. And they'd missed this notion of righteousness that is a gift because they confused it with what he calls proper righteousness. That is the, the righteousness, the obedience, the service that I offer to God that, that I actually do, that I perform. <clears throat> and he wanted to distinguish those very clearly and that was the heart of, of the whole Reformation Protestant move for the next 500 years right up to the present. In many places today, that, that notion of alien righteousness has been lost again. People don't, don't get it. They, they still come back to this idea that, that somehow the good news is that if I do the best I can, God will accept that. Luther says no. Now, uh, he makes that distinction very clearly early on in, in the Reformation. <clears throat> and uh, if you just read that little treatise, it, it seems like he's, you know, he's going to emphasize both of those, alien righteousness and proper righteousness, which is the, the good works. It's, uh, it's the obedience then that we offer to God out of thankfulness for the gift of righteousness in Christ. It sounds like he's off to a great start. But the reality is, uh, this, this is what often happens, you know, when, when you're in theological or any kind of conflict, people go to extremes. And so what happens with Luther, as, as I read him and read others talking about him, uh, it seems that in the battle that ensued with the Roman Catholic Church, he became stronger and stronger in affirming alien righteousness and weaker and weaker in affirming the importance of proper righteousness, as he called it. And I think that that has marked uh, much of Protestant history in the 500 years since. So uh, Dallas Willard, some years back, wrote the book he called The Great Omission. And, of course, it's an allusion to the Great Commission. He was a Southern Baptist, and they, they talk a lot about the Great Commission, right, where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And Dallas argues what's been lost there is that you go into all the world and you make disciples, and the great omission for him is the omission of discipleship as a necessary part of uh, the church's work. Now, 
Let's, let's see uh, a little bit further here if we can, uh, you know, I like diagrams. And this is a diagram I'm taking from uh, Paul Miller's book, The J-Curve, and I think it's helpful. If we think of this life in Christ idea as a, uh, as a pyramid of two sections, then the base of that section is what Luther calls alien righteousness. It's the righteousness that God gifts to me in Christ. In that section of the pyramid, the base of everything else, I understand that Christ dies for me. This we've called the righteousness of faith. I receive the righteousness of faith by believing, not by doing. I trust God's promise that if I rest my confidence on Jesus and what he has done, his perfect obedience, that I'm put right with God because I'm in him. <clears throat> now, on that comes the idea of, uh, as we've called it, proper righteousness, and Paul Miller calls that the the J-curve, or living into the J-curve. It's not the J-curve of Jesus, it's my J-curve. As I follow him, as he says to his disciples, if anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow. In this personal J-curve, I now die, <clears throat> I die to myself. This is what we're calling the righteousness of love, or what Luther calls proper righteousness. In the lower level of the pyramid, I believe in Christ. That's, that's all that I can do. But in this second level, built on the first level, now I am called to become like Christ. There's a notion here of imitation, right? And I'm to imitate Christ not because I think that by imitating Christ, God will accept me. No, he's already accepted me by faith. But now the desire is to become like Christ because I am a person who is coming to love him. The motivation then is not to perform, but the motivation is to become like the one whom I love. So it's that upper level then that we want to talk about uh, some today. This, uh, <clears throat> this, J, this personal J-curve, and you have in mind what that looks like, right? It's down and then up. It's, it's death and then resurrection. So let's think about that, uh, that first step. <clears throat> Dying to self. What does Jesus say? He says, well, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, 
then you need to imitate my way of life. And here is where it starts. You need to take up your cross. Now, we're going to think about that cross not just in a literal way. We're going to think of it actually primarily in a metaphorical way. But that's not how those first disciples would have heard it. Huh? They knew quite literally what the cross was. That was how the Romans got rid of the people they didn't like. It was brutal. And, and condemned victims some of whom were criminals, others were just victims. The first step in their dying was to take up the cross and carry the cross to the place of execution. So this is a very graphic, powerful, for many more cultured ancient people, this would have been a... Uh, uh, a crass way of even speaking. It would have been offensive even to say something like this. So they had such a, an understanding of the brutality of crucifixion that polite people didn't even talk about it. But Jesus does. He knows that he's going to the cross and he says, if you want to come after me, this is how it works. You take up your cross and you do it with the attitude that Jesus has. The attitude that says, not my will, but yours be done. Why? Because nobody likes a cross. Christians are not uh, masochists, right? <laughs> Who just rejoice in suffering for the sake of rejoicing in suffering. That's, that's not the view. It's rather that we follow Jesus who submitted his will to the will of God. And he takes up his cross with purpose and intention. And so Jesus says, you take up your cross and do it with my attitude. The attitude in the garden. Not my will, but yours be done. And then in that experience or experiences of, of the cross and the crosses that we face... We choose to see God in those places. If you are a believer in Jesus, you've been called to discipleship, and, and you will face crosses. The question is, for you and for me, what is our attitude when we experience it. Do we say, not my will but yours, God? Do we say, I don't like this, but I, see, I choose to see God at work? 
This, uh, this isn't just bad luck on my part. This isn't just perhaps the, the ill intent of other people to oppose me, to hurt me or something. I choose to see God at work in this, and I see in this an opportunity for me to become more like Jesus and for God to shape me and mold me. After all, we're talking about transformation, right? Becoming a different kind of person. How does that take place? It takes place by dying and rising again. The person that I am is not yet the person that God is planning for me to be. And the way to that person that looks more like Jesus is this hard way of death followed by resurrection. You know, sometimes when we face the suffering of the various crosses that come to us, we can get too discouraged to see God at work. And maybe, maybe that's where you find yourself today. Maybe you're in an experience of suffering, weakness of one way or another, and you're too discouraged to see God working in those circumstances. The invitation, then, is to see God at work. So what, what does this dying look like? <clears throat> well, I think it often looks like something we've talked about before. Remember back when we began this series, we looked at John the Baptist a little bit, and, and we looked at the Pharisees who came out to examine what John was doing out in the wilderness and we pointed out they came not to be baptized because after all it was a baptism of repentance. They didn't come for that. And the reason was they saw themselves high up on this honor-shame spectrum. So why would you repent if you're near the top? I mean, what do you have to repent of, huh? That's good for other people, the people that we recognize to be failures, to be zeros, to be rightly shamed. They, they need repentance. They need to get their lives back with God. But Pharisees didn't want to do that. Now, I think that this dying that we're talking about almost always, if not always, involves that honor-shame scale. The move down in dying usually has some relationship to our sense of shame or failure, our inadequacies. Well, this can be a, a number of things, can it? It could be, it could be a health crisis. Uh, Long-term, short-term. What does that say to us? 
Well, what it may say to us is, we're not as strong as we thought. What about the experience of injustice? Greatest example of that, of course, is Jesus himself. His trial, his death is a massive injustice. How do we respond to that? Whether we experience it at work or in the neighborhood or wherever. What about losses of various types? How about the loss of employment? How does that impact our sense of who we are? Uh, Might that be a cross? And what might God be doing in such a situation? What about failure of, I mean, of all sorts? What about, what about failure in our marriage? What about, what about failure to be the kind of parents we'd like to be? What about failure to accomplish various goals that we set before ourselves? What about opposition? So let me give you a a quick example and we'll stop here for today. About uh, 20 years ago, when I was at Biblical Seminary, we got involved in a, uh, a discussion there among the faculty and a discussion that was actually beginning to take place more broadly. Uh, A couple important books came out and some good discussion began and and I was very taken by it as were other faculty members. So much so that we felt that that this discussion which was about uh, missional church, that was the discussion, we felt that was so important that we we felt called by the Lord to reshape the entire curriculum of the seminary and to really push in in that new direction. It was an exciting time, and and it was an interesting time in part because uh, we we were the only seminary in the country that made a, a full-bore focus on that in a way that we revised our entire curriculum. And, uh, and that got some notice from people. I mean, we were, we were, you know, this little school down on the edge of the cow pasture, and all of a sudden, uh, we were talking to some people that had real visibility. So, so that was good. And, you know, I was the president at the time, so... You know, I was, I was feeling pretty good about that. I was, I was moving up the scale. Visibility, talking to people that never talked to before. Success. Wow, that was, that was good. 
What I did not anticipate, or at least I did not anticipate its degree, was the amount of opposition and pushback we were going to get to that. And uh, it, was, it was enough when it happened that had I known it ahead of time, uh, I might have just retired early, you know? Let, let somebody else do this. Uh, it, I mean, it was, uh, it, it was pretty rough. And some of it came from people I did not expect. That is, some of it came from our own graduates who, uh, who really gave us a beat. Uh, wouldn't recommend students to us, which was a major way that we recruited. Uh, they even started a, they called it the post-biblical website and uh, wrote articles uh, wrote, to, wrote to some of our major donors and told them that we were off the rails. So, I mean, we lost, we lost money. Uh, and, then, and then I got, uh, I got the really uh, tough letter from uh, somebody I had taught with previously who was a, a world renowned scholar and uh, and some of these grads were talking to him so he he wrote me an email uh, not a letter not a phone call <laughs> uh, he wrote me an email and said that uh, he thought that that I had been pretty effective uh, years before as a teacher but uh, Obviously, uh, leading a school was out of my league. And I should, he said, I don't, I, I'm sure you won't do this, but I think you ought to just resign. Well, that was a cross, friends. And the question is, when you get a cross like that, what do you do with it? And I not sure that uh, I knew quite what to do with it at first, but over a period of time, obviously what happened was that I took a, a pretty quick greased slide down the honor-shame scale. Huh? And, and I ended up somewhere down that scale and looking back on it, say, what was the purpose of that? See, we're looking for God at work in the crosses that we bear, and the pattern is you die so that you can rise again to a new life, a life that is more in conformity with Jesus. So what happened to me in that? Well, I was, I was greatly humbled in all that. And I think if for no other reason than that, I needed to go through that experience. I needed to live into my own personal J-curve, following Jesus. Uh, that, that felt like dying, friends. 
And that's what the J-curve does to you. And that's why transformation, remember way back in the beginning we said this, transformation is hard. Why? Because some part of you is dying. Now, we'll talk about this next week. The gospel is, though, that when part of you dies, in Christ, you come alive in a new way. And it's for that reason, not because we love suffering, but it's because of this hope of new life, Christ-likeness. That's why we embrace the cross. That's why we take up the cross as it comes and we walk that way to death. Because the good news is that God brings life out of death. And that's what we want. I suspect that some of you right now, are experiencing death in some form. So this is a a message of hopefulness, right? Because that shows me that God is at work in your life if you will recognize what he is doing and surrender yourself to it. The God of resurrection will be there. He will be present, perhaps not as quickly as you like. But he will be present, and he will raise you up, and you will look more like Jesus on the other side of this than you do now. Well, today is Communion Sunday, and of course, it takes us back, as it always does, to those central events that we're building our life around, which is Jesus giving himself for us And we remember that in this meal. Don Dressler is going to lead us in our time. Don, will you come up, please? Good morning, brothers and sisters to see you this morning. Whether you are at home or if you're here in the church building, welcome to the Lord's table. Uh, Just a reminder uh, to please have your bread and cup communion elements ready at this time. Another reminder that uh, followers of Jesus of every Christian tradition are welcome here at the table. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the death of Jesus until he comes. You know that uh, traditionally here at Grace Bible Church that whenever is once a month. When I was a child, uh, the church that my family attended 
we celebrated communion once every other month. And I'm sure that, uh, that you know of churches in our area that traditionally celebrate the Lord's table every week. Although it is important in our relationship with Jesus to regularly participate in this, in this sacred meal, the traditional frequency of whatever group uh, really does not make one a better or worse follower of Jesus. But there is something that is vital. We must not allow our particip participation in this meal to become just a tradition. God forbid that we should ever come to this meal in a routine 